Welcome to episode 162 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris coming to you actually from Tyler, Texas today as I do this introduction, spending the holidays with family. We've got an intro today for my guest, a returning guest, Sasha Golish is back on the show. She's going to be here to talk to me about not only her experiences at the World Championships in Doha and the heat fest that that was, but also to talk about resilience, which is a blog series actually that she just put out recently on the topic. And so we'll be talking about how to be resilient in the context of your running. And I'm excited to have her back on the show. She was in in Austin with me in doing that. Before we get started with her, a couple of quick things for, by way of introduction. First of all, just a reminder that you can sign up for the Virtual Rogue podcast training right now through January 3rd. If you go to www.roguerunning.com forward slash podcast training. We talked about that recently on the show with Mary Margaret, who is a current member of that group. Secondly, by way of intro, a little bit of current events. Desiree Linden this past week announced that she will be officially running the marathon trials and then also doing the Boston Marathon right after that in April. So she's got about six weeks, maybe seven weeks between the two races, and she'll be doing both, going for the Olympic team as well as trying to get back on the podium or the top of the podium at Boston. She made a clever announcement with with that on Twitter. So I would encourage you to go check that out on her Twitter feed about how she made that announcement playing on the bourbon is whiskey Larry comment that she made at the press conferences at New York. And so this is interesting and I've had a lot of people ask me what I think about it and what I think about her chances in both races. And first of all, I I'm glad she's going to be racing at the trials. I'm excited about that. I think she's automatically a favorite, and I would put her on my top three for for finishing there uh, to make an Olympic team. So I think that's good news for all of us to be able to see her racing in Atlanta. And it is no surprise to me that she would also do Boston because she's going to have a big appearance fee to show up there as a prior champion. And so it would be it would be a big pay cut on the year if you didn't actually show up at Boston. She'll have the opportunity to earn money at the Olympic trials, but a Boston appearance fee could be, you know, close to six figures for somebody who's a a prior champion. And that's going to be more than likely she's going to be able to earn at the Olympic trials. And even if it is less, it's still a big payday to give up walking away from that. So it doesn't surprise me that she's going to be there. Do I think she can compete well in both? Well, I think she can compete well, but can she do her best at both? Probably not. You know, I think there's a new and recent trend of elites kind of doing marathons close together. Sarah Hall tried to do it at Berlin and then New York ended up dropping out of New York. We had some athletes who ran the the world champs and then came back at New York. I think the best example of doing that and doing it well was Roberta Groner who did well in both events, but I think that's probably more the exception rather than the rule. The marathon is still hard on you and it's hard to compete at your very best across two marathons that might be 6 to 8 weeks apart. So, while I think Des can 
can do well at the trials, potentially even do respectably at Boston if she does well at the trials after that. I don't think she'll be able to compete for a podium in both spots. And that's okay because for Des, it still means she'll get a payday in Boston, even if she doesn't do her best. And then, of course, if she makes an Olympic team, she'll be able to go to do the Olympics in Tokyo. And and so that's all good. And I and I think that this is a good decision by Des, but I don't I don't think we can fool ourselves into thinking that she can, you know, compete at the highest level at both of those races that close together. I think that's going to be very, very difficult to do as the marathon does beat you up in that way. But the other part of this is that it gives her optionality. It gives her, you know, a decision to make. And as somebody with the experience that she has, she can, can, I think, make good decisions. And if for some reason things aren't going well in Atlanta, she might choose to, drop out of that race and then still be able to go put her best foot forward in Boston and can potentially compete for a podium there. So, so in a lot of ways, you know, this is a good decision by Des, even if it means I think for certain that she can't put her best foot forward at both races, it gives her choices, gives her optionality. It also allows her to have the payday that she deserves at Boston every year as a prior champion. And so, you know, I love it from a from a athlete decision standpoint you know from a coaching standpoint you know it, it makes things a little bit difficult and it's hard it's going to be really hard to try to peak at both as i said and i don't think that anyone should be under any delusions that somehow a handful of elites have somehow found a cheat code to be able to do two marathons well over a 6 to 8 month or sorry 6 to 8 week period i just don't think that's optimal or possible And I would discourage it from the general population unless you just have a really good reason for it or unless you're choosing to make one of those marathons a long run that's run easy versus trying to race. I just don't think you can peak in the marathon and get your most out of two marathons in that short a period of time. So I want to make that clear as a coach. But love it. As I said, for Des, as as an athlete decision, love it as a fan, and I think it's going to be fun to watch and see how she does in both. And if, as I'm sitting here right now, and obviously I'll make more predictions as we get closer, I would pick for Des to be top three in the trials and make an Olympic team her third in the marathon, which I believe would be the she'd be the first American woman. Not sure about the men. She'd be the first American woman to make three Olympic marathon teams which would be pretty awesome. So we'll be watching for that. And as we wrap, that's all I had on the intro. We've got a little bit longer episode with Sasha, so we'll jump right in with her. Here we go. Welcome, Sasha Golish, back to the show. How are you doing today, Sasha? I mean, I'm pretty good. I just hiked Mount Bonnell. What could be better? Yeah, in uh, you're in Austin. I'm in Austin again. Which is exciting. Last time I talked to you, you weren't in Austin. We were doing that remotely while you were in Toronto, I believe. Episodes 144 and 145. 144 was me interviewing you about staying fit through injury. 145 was you interviewing me about my first ultra. That was pretty fun stuff. It was really fun stuff. A lot has happened between then and now. A lot <laughs> has happened between so then and now. So let's catch everybody up first before we get to our main topic where we're going to be talking about resilience First, it's it's kind of a funny story <laughs> about why you're here. 
and I'm happy that you're here, but I'm not sure that you know you being here for 24 hours just to collect some packages <laughs> is maybe the happiest of circumstances. So, how did we end up in this position? So, December 2nd, I went out for a run, ironically the morning before giving a keynote presentation on resilience. And I was going to get a coffee um, from my favorite coffee shop in Vancouver. And I was trying to be very Vancouverish and not use my car. So I decided to run. And I tripped over my own shoelace and went down, which <laughs> meant, um, well, and I thought I was going to be okay. And I was supposed to race in San Antonio the weekend following that. But on Tuesday, when I woke up and I couldn't walk, I was like, I don't think I'll be racing. So I won't be coming to Austin. Right. In the meantime, you'd sent a, bu- sent a bunch of packages to my house. Black Friday. <laughs> I went shopping for the holidays. Because the plan was for you to be here after you raced in San Antonio and that didn't work out. So you came to retrieve your packages. I am here for my tree gifts. No, no thanks to Canadian Customs. Well, yes. And yes. just shipping in general. Shipping in general. I'm happy to have you here. We didn't get to have you as long as we would have had you raced in San Antonio, but hey, 24 hours is is good enough. And well, in those four days, I kind of figured out two other or three other trips where I'll be back. So maybe I, you know. (laughs) Perfect. It's exponential time here. So what's going on after the fall? How are you doing in bouncing back? (laughs) Well, I quite literally bounced off the pavement, so that (laughs) didn't work out so well. (laughs) Not well. <laughs> no, not well. Uh, but um, you know, had some rough moments. Had some really rough moments. Um, I think that's why we're talking about resilience. Right. Um, a lot of simple, joyful moments too, though, and I think that's kind of what kept me going. Um, I'm officially a doctor now. My thesis is published. Anybody can read it. PhD. PhD. That's a big deal. It is. Yeah. I sometimes forget it is. Uh, Yeah. Well, you shouldn't. It's huge. And you're teaching now at the University of Toronto. Yep. So a lot of life change. Last time we talked on episode 144, you were talking about training for New York coming back from the last time you tripped in (laughs) (laughs) Philadelphia. And, you know, there's a theme here. But you didn't do New York. No, I tripped in (laughs) Phil. Because you had another race pop up. In the meantime, which is that you got to go to World Championships in Doha. I did. Compete for Canada, Team Canada. So how did that come about, first of all? Um, our team selection was, I don't even know how it really happened, but it, it was supposed to be announced, I think, August 24th, and they held out till August 28th, and it was this sort of like weird unknown and you I would email Athletics Canada be like hey like there's a chance I'm going can you give me any inform- information radio silence like just crickets nothing and then all of a sudden you get this email that says hey congratulations you're coming to to worlds and you're like oh god I gotta <laughs> rearrange my life again a month and a half to prepare <laughs> or whatever uh, f- August 28th September 28th so yeah. like wow so a month a month wow yeah and that's I had, crazy I got the teaching job at U of T on August 26th <laughs> Hey, by the way, I'm taking two weeks off. I've got a vacation to Doha planned. (laughs) Just popped up. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I had told them it was a possibility, so I didn't didn't surprise them too much. So Worlds popped up, which took precedence over New York for obvious reasons. And 
as we all know, that was an insane day in Doha. It was insane. With the temperatures yeah. being north of 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Heat well index north. at least. Yeah, heat index at least. When the race started, and it started at midnight or something crazy, right? 11.59 11.59 p.m. So tell us a little bit about that experience. I first, mean, first of all, just how was it in the beginning? Did you feel like you were going to melt into the earth? So it was like walking into a sauna. I mean, it was so it was 45.8 degrees Celsius with the heat index, which I think works out to be 114 degrees Fahrenheit. Man. So, and it was really humid. So the humidex, I think, was 85% uh, when we started, and it dropped down to 79%, which really is not much of a discernible change no so it quite literally was was being in a sauna and you know like there's a couple funny memories i mean um they had this like golf cart hospital cart that was going around and picking up bodies it was like a zombie apocalypse out there Hmm. and at one point i was like oh my god that arm's really hairy i was like oh my god one of the medical people's gone down oh no (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) oh no so bystanders were going down i mean it was just it was it it was inhumane and it was you know had they waited 24 hours it actually would have been a very different race the the heat index dropped a lot the humidex dropped a lot but i think they felt pressure to put the race on and they were sort of some extreme temperatures like generally at that time of the year it's not that hot out and it's not that humid out i did get to see a really beautiful sunrise Saw that on your Instagram. <laughs> you stayed up all the way until sunrise. Well, I'd had a, quite a bit of caffeine <laughs> going into 11.59 p.m. What were the precautions the race was taking to try to make it manageable? Um, I think they had some extra water stations, although there was like one stretch that was much longer than all of the other ones to get to water. Mm. Um, so we had, you know, sort of odd water stations out there and there was a lot more hands on deck handing out water than I think you'd see in a normal race. Uh, but I don't think anything about that was normal. Um, unfortunately, there were no, there were sponges, but they weren't cold. And mm. maybe that's just, it was so hot that they got warm and they started right. cold. Um, I think they tried to do the best that they could, but like they were just up against too many variables. And you were up against those same variables, oh, but what? you had to run 26.2 miles. At least that was the theory. How that did it play <laughs> out? How did it play out for you? So I, um, I sort of know the America girls, and they were great. So we were all shoving ice down our shorts, down our bras, and our hats, towels. Um, but what was unfortunate was with ten minutes before the race, as we went through the kind of microchip area, they made us drop all of that stuff. So mm. that was the one thing I was like, I was really surprised they did that. Yeah, actually, and they had this massive firework show, and they air quality was really terrible and i was like wow you really helped us out there guys <laughs> like and we're in the tent we don't get to see it so all the spectators all four of them get to see it <laughs> um and then so the you know the idea was to keep yourself as cool as possible like i bought towels there and our team doctors had ice and everything to help us out but um probably around 16k but definitely around 18k i was like oh my gosh i'm not sweating i was like oh sports science i know what's happening right <laughs> Heat-related illness. Heat-related illness is in. coming. And so sometime around 19K, I was like, okay, well, let's just test what's going on and see how things are going and kind of picked up the pace. And I was like, oh, I have goosebumps from my yeah. wrist to my shoulders. Like, okay, I'm like 
I'm now moving into the more dangerous sections of, of heat stroke. And I got to our aid station where our lead sports scientist, Trent Stellingworth, was, who's also a good friend of mine. And I was like, hey, Trent, here are my symptoms. And he's like, do you need me to tell you to stop racing? I was like, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I'm kind of in the middle of this. Can Please. I make it to the end? He's like, no, not no. at all. I was like, okay. I was like, I'm going to have a moment where I start crying. He's like, yeah, that's fine. Yeah. So he confirmed what you knew already. Yeah. He said, you know, you'll probably make it to 30K, but mm, odds aren't in your favor. I was like, all right. How did you approach it from a pace perspective? Um, so the thinking was like really conservative, obviously. And, you know, I'm, I, I wasn't the only one. But um, I think one of the things that really helped myself and the Americans or and sort of the Canadian team and the American team was while everybody was out doing a warm up for God knows why it was hot. You walked outside. You're like, oh, ready to go. Already warm. Yep. yep. Good. Um, you know, we were doing our last minute bathroom stops because we were quite hydrated. The number of people doing warm ups was just insane, mm. quite mm. literally insane. Um, and I just remember thinking like, you're all going to drop. And we, we all really started as pack. Like nobody really took off. I mean, the winning time was what? 331? 231? 232. 232. So like, yeah. not like not a world-class right. time. Right. Um, and they really didn't pick up the pace probably until five kilometers to go. Um, so I think they went out at about 340 per kilometer, which is what? 555 per mile. Six minutes per mile. Your math on that's better than mine. Mm, I don't do math and running. Yeah. It's one place I protect. <laughs> so, um, and then people just, I think because they had warmed up after the first loop started dropping like flies. And I don't think the pace is what got to people. I mean, it was just the heat. Yep. And so you started conservatively. How much slower relative to maybe how you would have started on a cool day did you start? Uh, 20 seconds per kilometer. Wow, which is even more per mile, obviously. Mm -hmm. It's about 30 seconds per mile. Yep. And it still wasn't enough. I don't think, I actually don't think it was the pacing. I I think it. I would have been like the medic with the hairy arm that went on. <laughs> yeah. I think no matter what, I was going, I was not going to make it standing. I mean, I think yeah. it was just that hot. I don't think my physiology... I don't, you know, we're all individuals. I don't think my physiology and I don't think many people's physiology was meant to do that. Right. So there would have been no circumstances that would have got you to the finish? Uh, not a, not the humidex and heat index at what it right, was. Right. I think men's marathon temperature, it would have been fine. It was different. Yeah, it was what, 20 degrees cooler or something Fahrenheit? Mm-hmm. Yeah. At least 25, I think, yeah. or even 30. Okay. Yeah. I think 30 with the heat index. Right. And what was it? About 45% of the field ended up dropping in the women's race. Mm -hmm. And so I thought what was interesting that the IAAF advertised that nobody went to a hospital. And that's because they built a field hospital. <laughs> there was a literally <laughs> hospital there. Yeah. So there were many. I think I think I was one of the few that didn't go to the med, to the med tent. Wow. I went in there to get water for people. Basically, because you stopped before it got to that point, yeah. you realized the what was happening. But your teammates did really well. They did exceptionally well. So, what was it like then to go back out and cheer for them? Uh, I think it might end up being one of the highlights of my life. Really? Watching Lindsay Tessier finish ninth was magic. It was just 
so incredible. And Lindsay's a pretty special person because she crosses the finish line and the first thing she said was, are you okay? And I was like, I'm fine. <laughs> yeah, and she's she... like, can I have that water? <laughs> I was like, yeah, Please. it's for you. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like laughing and crying at the same time. I was like, I am so underslept at this yeah. point. Yeah, yeah. And this would have been, what, 2.30 in the morning? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 2.45. Did you prepare for that at all? Running like, at midnight? How does that, how does that even, how do you even conceptualize that? Um, you kind of go, well, this is bonkers. Right. Um, but it's actually 5 p.m. in Toronto. So it's like my favorite workout time. So you just pretend that, well, I didn't want to pretend that it was sunny because <laughs> it was already so hot. But, but you had already adjusted, right? I mean, your body had already theoretically adjusted to the time zone. I was on a sleep program where I was staying up later and later. Hmm. So it was quite bizarre. I felt like a vampire. So I was sleeping till about some, I would sleep between 10 hours and 10 and 12 hours a night. And I would get up between noon and 2 p.m. Interesting. And the sun set there at 5.30. So I did not get a whole lot of sunshine time. So it that, I think, played with me more than the heat. Because hmm. I am a creature of the sun. Right. And I felt, so I felt very stuck in a hotel. And I just, you know, yeah. like, you're not, you're not going out in Doha as a white woman alone at right. night. Like, way to get in trouble. <laughs> right. <laughs> so... What's your take on the uh, discussion around the Olympics? Because it seems like they're hell-bent on moving it to Sapporo, even though some athletes seem to think they would still prefer Tokyo. But Tokyo is going to be, it would seem, as hot and humid as Doha was, or at least close to it. So what's your take on that whole debate? Because it's kind of surprised me that there's been some resistance to moving it. Well, so the other thing with Tokyo that we did not have to contend with was is the sunshine right so Tokyo is going to be run midday a um, little bit like Rio right they're not going to start at midnight right although I think there was some discussion on that yeah. but they said no yep. um, I mean I think the athletes that are speaking out are the ones that perform well in the in that weather and that's great you know um, but I think we've done it enough times now in the heat like we've had Rio I believe Moscow was just as hot and now London was pretty hot too, I think, in World Championships in 2017 and then 2019 Doha. It's like, okay, so let's do something new. Um, now, $100 million to move it to Sapporo? Mm. That seems odd, right? <laughs> a little much. And then I'm like, so don't host any of them, which is horrible to say, but I, I think at that cost, sport loses its meaning. I've heard some discussion about the idea of moving the marathon to the winter Olympics because then theoretically, you know, conditions will be much better wherever that might be. What do you think about that? I think we just need to plan like the winter Olympics and put events from the start where they make sense, right? You, you wouldn't host Alpine skiing on some concrete road somewhere. Right. Um, and I think, you know, some, some thought needs to be put into that mountain biking's moved. Like just cause the track is in the city it may not make sense for the road events to be there. I'd actually really like to see two events added to the Winter Olympics. I'd like to see cross-country running there because um, I think it would open up more of the African countries to the Winter Olympics mm -hmm. um, and cyclocross riding, which is like the most fun event to watch. And the marathon. We're going to add a third to that list. I think you should leave <laughs> the marathon with the summer. The summer? Yeah, I think it... Really? Yeah, because it, it goes... Well, then, or do you think about splitting the marathon from world championships completely and having world marathon championships like you have world half marathon championships? Right. 
And maybe that then opens up athletes who are good at the 10,000 too, because trying to double in the 10 and the marathon is right. Ouch. Yeah. Hard. And depending on the schedule, sometimes not even possible. Come on now. We can all dope and <laughs> it's absolutely possible. Just the right amount of EPO. Yeah. So do you have any regrets from Doha? No. I, I did everything that I could. I managed sleep, temperature, everything else. I can't control the weather. Um, I don't have any regrets from Doha. I do after. Okay. Well, let's <laughs> dig into that. <laughs> it's, it would seem like, I mean, and we exchanged messages a little bit while you were still there, but... Because I was on your time zone. <laughs> <laughs> right. It would seem like initially you seem to accept what happened in Doha and at least take solace and satisfaction how your teammates did. But then it also seemed like when you got back and the reality hit of dropping out of the world champs, that maybe you hit the other end of the spectrum and and faced that in a different way after the fact. Talk about that. Am I right, first of all? And then secondly, what what were you feeling? So I think you're right. Like, I think there's always some disappointment uh, without with not finishing a race and not finishing a race on a world championship stage in particular. Um, I don't think the outcome would have been different if I kept going. Actually, I know the outcome wouldn't have been much different. It would have been worse. <laughs> well, well, it would have been like, okay, I made it three more kilometers and I got an IV bag. Right. Um, my mistake was not taking a breath after and. Part of that was I was so excited that I could run again that I got so wrapped up in that that I forgot to listen to all of my own advice. Right. But, you know, it's solid ice in Toronto right now and I can't run anyway. So maybe I'm not going to miss out. I'll look back and be like, man, I made the right decision. <laughs> yeah. Who knows? But then you wrote a blog about facing burnout. Oh, Did yeah. that come because of trying to jump back too quickly or... Was it a, a mix of things? I actually think it was more related to my PhD. Okay. So post PhD, uh, I emailed my supervisor and was like, and I, so I defended on Thursday and I said, hey, Friday, I'm going to take the day off and just read a book. And he's like, I think you're going to need more time than that. <laughs> and, I, and I was like, why? I feel fine. And I did. Um, and I jumped right into writing a paper on the Monday. Um, and I think that was the mental more than anything that really got me. That was a massive body of work, like massive. Mm -hmm. And I actually wrote um, in my, what do they call it? The acknowledgements. I said, you know, this is my Olympic podium. Right. You know, it took me four years to do a PhD. It's an Olympic cycle. Um, and I took no time. I took one day. I read a book on the Friday. <laughs> Rawl said I looked more tired then than I did after ru running the marathon. And I was like, <laughs> okay, whatever. Yeah had my ice cream party on a Sunday and got right back into it on Monday. And I think that more than anything is what killed me. And so it also contributed to the physical burnout. I mean, was burnout in your running too? No. So it's interesting. My running was going so well. And I think this is one of the big differences. And I'm kind of teasing out the details, the difference between overtraining and burnout. So it's pure mental. Um, okay. And when I like, do any running like it's at pace body feels great everything feels awesome yep minus a fall um but 
the symptoms from burnout in terms of like the mental fatigue, like they almost mirror reds. So the relative energy deficiency syndrome. Mm-hmm. Um, but the good thing, the difference is, is that again, it's just kind of like brain and like your body vitals are all great. Yeah. Or they, well, mine were, I got them tested. <laughs> <laughs> so how, how did that manifest in mentally? Just a lack of desire to go out and run or do other work or what was it? What did you feel? Um, so I had no desire to be competitive, hmm. which I am the most competitive with myself. And if I have no desire to be competitive with myself, I was like, oh, what? Oh, oh, I see what's happening. Yeah. And I was sleeping like an inordinate amount for what I was doing. Like I was sleeping 13, 14 hours a night and waking up just feeling completely exhausted. Um, and here we're going to go real awkward. So um, Trent Stellinger talked about identifying um, symptoms with reds. And he talked about uh, with men, um, one of the main things is that they, they have no sexual desire. Like they don't wake up with a boner. You know, none of those hormones are flowing. But I think the same thing is true with women. Hmm. Um, and I think it's this like caveman thing goes off and it's like, go to bed, don't have a baby. You can't take care of it. <laughs> Um, <laughs> and it was like, I would just like hole up. Like I quite literally went into hibernation and all yep. I did was sleep and read and look at things that I was supposed to work on. They would sit on my screen and I'd look mm. at them and cry. <laughs> hmm. So what do you do about that? What's, what's, what's next? So I've, um, I talked to Rebecca Mara who wrote a great piece on burnout for Wazell. She did it like six weeks before I hit mine. Mm. Yeah. I read uh, that one. What she didn't post was the thing that helped her the most was writing out a list of the things that bring her joy. Um, and so Matt, no matter what, um, doing at least one thing every day to, to bring yourself joy. And for me, uh, it's the connection to nature. And so um, I feel that's where I feel where I belong the most. And so Raul and I have gone on some really cool urban hikes. As I said, I want a really cool urban hike here. Um, in Vancouver, same thing. I went kind of walking in the woods um, I actually texted my friend Jonas who lives there and I was like, oh, I'm really suffering from burnout. Do you want to go do the gross grind? <laughs> and he replied, he's like, things only professional athletes say. He's like, right. for sure. But you know, when we finished, he's like, you really did do it just for being outside. We never talked about time. Like, have you even looked at your watch? I was like, did I even start it? Right. It was just about being in the rocks and the trees with two people that like I really cared about because we all flew out to watch me race nationals, but we didn't go to the race. <laughs> And for those that don't know, Grouse Grind is near Vancouver, just on the other side of the water from the city and is straight uphill for what, a mile, half mile, three quarters of a mile? It's one and a half. The hike is one and a half miles and it's uh, just over a half mile in vertical. So you basically just climb straight up a mountain. Straight up. Yep. Yep. And that was supposed to get you out of burnout. It did. (laughs) Like it was just, there there wasn't a physical effort to it, right? Like I just, it was this massive connection to the planet like I it was so refreshing so how are we doing on the burnout scale now still I'm still in recovery okay <laughs> burnout recovery enormous yep. um I met like monitor the things I do every day so a new end of term what comes with end of term marking many assignments and many exams and just you know, making sure I gave myself lots of time. So I just did a few every day and then disconnected from that and went and did something that brought me joy. And then, you know, would work on a paper that I was really excited about, but not 
um, in the passion paradox dive in way, like in a very like controlled manner so that I was excited to come back to it again the next day. Um, fallings really helped me because I didn't listen to the running gods apparently. And they <laughs> said, fine, you're not listening. Let's do this. Um, and I haven't actually, been, I can't bike. I couldn't bike. I couldn't swim, couldn't cross train. And so walking was the only thing sort of five days after that was pain free. And so just would go walking in the woods. Hike, walk. Hike. Yep. And physically, are you on the mend, feeling okay? Yeah, it just gets tight. I've got, um, I had an x-ray. There's no crack. I've got some pretty classical bursitis. Thank you, little bursa pocket. for in the hip. Yeah, protecting yep. my femur as I went down and hit the ground. Uh, the bruising's all healed up. Uh, all the cuts have healed up. So, yeah, I got the go-ahead from my chiropractor last Friday to start back easy. So I'm just using my injury yep. blog. <laughs> <laughs> Ten-minute run. I went for one minute on, one minute off on the indoor track the other day because <laughs> Toronto's a skating rink. <laughs> we don't get that really here very often. Oh. Thank goodness. But it is been it has been cold. It's gonna be sub zero Celsius here tomorrow. Yeah, I'm gonna have to borrow some clothes if I'm coming out <laughs> to the workout in the morning <laughs> think, to cheer. I, I think we can accommodate. <laughs> I think we can accommodate. One of the things you did while suffering, maybe I should say recovering from burnout, was write a blog about resilience wasn't just a blog. It was a seven blog series. <laughs> All raw. So you had some extra time on your hands and you wrote a blog. I, did. I actually wrote it before. Really? Bor- yeah. I wrote um, most of this seven series before I wrote the burnout blog. Interesting. Yeah. And maybe so it, that caused your burnout. No, I actually thought it, I think it was the start of the recovery. Like I think I think the rock bottom moment was probably earlier than I realized. Like hitting the deck was not the rock bo- bottom moment. Um maybe crying when the Lion King came up on screen on the flight up to Vancouver. <laughs> the rock. I nice. don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So why, why the resilience blog um, or blog series? I should say. I actually wrote it for the students that I'm working with. So I work in a really challenging faculty. So um, I work in engineering and I work in the engineering sciences division and it basically it's like putting engineering on steroids in ter- terms of theory and we were really horrible to the students to say the least <laughs> there's a lot I'd like to change but um, we had a student death um, actually the minute I started my race in Doha a student committed suicide mm. and I spoke to the students when I came back about not finishing my race and and resilience and those low moments in terms of our mental health and wellness and how important it is to reach out um and to be resilient when you're feeling down and so it was it was inspired by the students that I was with and going into exams I wanted to give them something back because they gave me something all term so you did it for the students but where did it come from like where did your perspective on resilience come from um, a lot of conversations in studio with the students. So we have these groups that we sit down with, with, you know, 20 kids every week. And, you know, two students in particular, um, really helped kind of me th- kind of tease out my thoughts on it. So one student, um, had an unfortunate slip and she, she got a concussion and she just, she went up against so many different barriers at the university in terms of accessibility services and wanting to come back to school and getting sick again and just not being able to. And, she wanted to drop out of the program at one point. She said, like, what can I do to not do this? And I was like, how badly do you want this? 
and she's like really badly I'm like then then be patient and then you know another student who just asked me how I worked through kind of the moments of not finishing world championships but coming to school and smiling all the time and it just got me thinking about it and I was like okay it's time to put some ideas down on paper and you know fine I wrote it for the students I probably wrote it for me so I can go back and read it when I need it so let's start with just a basic definition and I know this is a little out of sequence but <laughs> for from your series, but but what is resilience to you? Um that natural ability to get yourself up when you fall down. Um, but also part of resilience is the fear to not fail and so to take the risk too. And so it's kind of like a double edged sword, like, oh my gosh, I'm gonna do this and I might fail. And just making sure you have the tools that if you do fail, you can get back up. Is there a piece of it too, though, that comes before failure? You know, like I think about the tough stages of a marathon as an example. Yeah. And you might be in a dark place at mile 22, but sometimes you might also show resilience in that dark place and still manage it well and fight through those moments and get to a good place anyway. Yeah, and I think it's training those moments. So you you sort of have to go through failure in training um, to know that you have the courage to get back up if it's going to get a little bit dark. And I wouldn't, you're not, it's not failure, right, at 22 miles when it gets dark. It's, okay, I failed before. I'm not close to being there. I got to push through and go. And I know I can push through and go. So one of the things you say, now going back in sequence, in the first part of the seven-part blog series <laughs> is is this which is that what makes me resilient is not my ability to cope or manage these events it is the lessons i learn from these setbacks the strength i gain from the rebound i thought that was interesting way to put it because i do think we often equate coping and resilience why are they different i think coping is a strategy to not deal with what's going on and i think Sometimes you have to be able to do that, right? Like dark moment in a marathon, you have to cope so that you can keep going um, and find the positivity where um, I talk about resilience, this idea of sitting with the sadness and it's kind of the sitting with the sadness where you can tease out the lessons and you tease out the little things that didn't work, but also lets you see the big picture of the things that really did work. And I think that's what helps with the rebound. So what does that look like though? I mean... One of the th- one of the things it looks like, at least from reading the blog series and also processing it myself, and Scott Fallbell actually talked a little bit about it in his recent podcast with Rich Roll, where he talked about letting the pain in, mm-hmm. sitting with the pain, mm-hmm. accepting the pain, not trying to avoid the pain because you know it's coming and in order to get where you want to go, you have to face it. And... So I think that's a little bit of what maybe you're talking about there, which is instead of, you know, avoiding the feelings or the pain or the challenge or the frustration, anger, all the things that might come with a difficult situation, just letting all of that in, letting, letting yourself sit with it is a part of this, you know, not speeding past the dark yeah so what do you think about that yeah I you know 
I guess I don't like to call it pain and I you know and maybe that's just that's just my perspective and it's um I don't know why I guess I just try and be a little bit more positive or I just don't (laughs) want it like I don't want to equate it to something that some people have no control over I don't know but I think you know that's it's embracing that and and being almost excited for it to come to and maybe it's that shift in and how you perceive things I think Kelly McGonigal's done some really cool research on it particularly with stress how you know, like stress is probably the number one killer in the world because it causes all these different things um like cancer heart disease you name it um right. but that if you like reframe and have a different interaction that like the chemical release that you get in your body and maybe that's it like maybe there's something to that with like embracing the pain so that you can like have a different chemical release and that's part of the resilience embracing the suck as we say oh i have that t-shirt <laughs> the I do. I, I mean, you can call it what you want. I mean, either way, it hurts. <laughs> right? <laughs> How do you call Ouch. it? Call it something good, bad, and different. Sure, it makes pain. me cry. So same, same. It hurts. But one thing that I've found in racing is that, and I was talking about this in front of a group in Dallas this week that was prepping for the Dallas Marathon. I was saying that one thing that's that's a little bit of a paradox of racing is that when you are in the dark places and it does hurt. If you slow down, it still hurts. Oh, God. If you go faster, it still hurts. If you don't go any (laughs) different pace, it hurts. So no matter what, it hurts. And in some ways, it hurts more when you slow down because then you're out there longer and experiencing it longer. (laughs) So you might as well push and, and lean into that pain because then you'll get through it a little faster that's how i learned how to climb hills mount or recycling yeah i mean one of my mantras in races before has been when it hurts push harder right using pain as a signal not to slow down but to actually pick it up because either way it hurts (laughs) yeah either way it hurts yep so you agree yeah totally so you said in that sort of same thread of this first kind of blog in the series it's about sitting with the incident to absorb the effects negative or positive so your body and brain are stronger when you return so is that what we're talking about i think i think so i mean it's really uncomfortable to be in pain um and maybe that's it maybe we need to to shift our focus that the pain that's entering is is discomfort and not chronic pain Um, and embracing that discomfort and kind of figuring out where it is, why it's there, like kind of doing like put your journalism hat on and, and have a little, write a little article about it with yourself. Right. Um, to really learn from it. Yeah. I mean, some of it I think is just acknowledging and not just acknowledging sitting with it, but also naming it Mm -hmm. and it may not be pain in a race, but but it could be whatever the circumstances that you might be struggling with, just acknowledging and naming and saying out loud that this is hard. And this is challenging, yeah. And that's not necessarily a sign of weakness. It's just a sign of, of in some ways, preparation. I actually think it's a sign of strength, um, right? It takes courage to say, like, this hurts. This is a challenge. This is scary. Like, I think that actually takes more courage. And I think it's, it's the opposite when you do it. Like, I think it's a sign of weakness when you kind of pretend it's not there. Yeah. Yeah. I was having, I had a brief conversation last week with somebody who had raced at CIM 
and didn't have the race that they wanted. And this person happened to be at Rogue and saw me and, you know, kind of poured their heart out. No, no. He oh. kind of sheepishly walked over, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and uh, thinking, I don't know, that I would was disappointed too or something. And, uh, and, and then kind of said, hey, well, we should probably talk about <laughs> this, you know, talk about what happened and so forth. And, and my first thing, first statement to him was, no, we shouldn't talk about it yet. Right. Like what you need to do is just be mad, be sad, right. be, be whatever for however long it takes. I, you know, some people say the 24 hour rule, the 48 hour rule. I don't necessarily put a timeline on it. I think if you're going longer than a week where you're, you know, having a pity party, then that's probably too long. <laughs> but, but sometimes it takes three, four or five days to process emotions of a bad result or bad's probably not the right, right. Or of a result that you, you know, was less than what you wanted. And in this case, I'm like, I don't want to talk about it with you. Like you need to like deal with all the emotion that comes, feel all those feelings, right? be mad, be sad, be disappointed, frustrated, whatever. And then, you know, next week, if you're ready, we can talk about it because logic tells me that there's a lot to learn and there's a lot to be excited about from this one, but yeah. you're not ready to hear any of that. So right. just go be. <laughs> and I think he was a little bit relieved to hear that message. Like he, he, he wasn't prepared for me or he, he didn't want me to sit there and say, but you should be happy anyway. Right. That would have been the wrong message because he shouldn't be in that moment. I mean, and if he was happy, then that's fine. But that I knew wasn't how he was going to feel. So anyway, it was just, I think he was relieved to have me acknowledge that it was okay for him to feel the way he felt. Well, and I think that's actually one of the things that I've learned kind of through this was, um, that second post about, you know, resilience is a, is a natural response. Um, but not in the moment. Right. And we try to hurry to fix things right away. But that's not the way to do things. Um, and I suspect that like over those three, five, seven days, it's probably the same as the 24 hour rule. It's just broken into chunks as opposed to dealing it with 24 hours at once. Um, but more about, you know, dealing with it in chunks. And that's the thing with the 24 hour rule. If you're not ready, then the 24 hour rule doesn't work because you're not you're not ready to absorb. Right. Right. You like you're basically like a saturated sponge. And after a marathon, all those emotions, you're a saturated sponge. Like you need some time to kind of let those emotions out because yep. otherwise you've got confounding emotions. You're not really going to learn the lessons that you're supposed to learn. So in your second blog of the series on what you actually talk about, what is resilience? You have a quote from David Isaacs, who I guess is quoted from the Journal of Pediatrics and Child Health. And he said, resilience is the ordinary human adaptive response to tragedy not extraordinary it is a lack of resilience which is abnormal people also need time to heal preferably with the help of trusted friends or family some may need professional help such as cognitive behavioral therapy psychotherapy or family therapy rapid debriefing after a traumatic event which some used to advocate has been shown to make things worse mm -hmm. so he's reinforcing and he's probably not talking about a bad race he's probably talking about other other tragedy but I think in some ways it's similar and it's the same idea. You you can't be too quick to jump to the next thing yeah. because sometimes it'll be 
I think it manifests in the forms of people ignoring those feelings or maybe feeling they shouldn't feel those feelings. So they kind of skip over them because they think that's a sign of weakness or something. Mm. I also think sometimes people are quick to want revenge or, or another shot. So they start to plan the next race that they're going to do to try to get back what they didn't get. Or they say, I'm never doing that again. (laughs) Or they say that. Right. (laughs) Which is equally as bad. Right. All of those things happen with that spur of the moment decision-making versus allowing yourself to feel, be present in whatever feelings you're having and then process later. Yeah. I wonder, though, about this idea of making things worse. You know, when I read that quote, I, I sort of thought, well, I know that theoretically we should process things and give ourselves time and then get to a better place before we plan the next thing. So that I know, but I I don't think I really internalize this idea that you could actually make things worse by moving too quickly to process. You know, my assumption I think was just that if you jump too soon, then you're not processing those things. Eventually you're going to pay the piper and it's going to come and it might not be for three months or four months or a year. Right. At which point you're going to face those feelings at some point. Is that worse or is that just deferring it to a different time? I don't know. But so, but that was interesting to me. It kind of hit me in the face of not only is it important for optimizing the next steps to give yourself time to process, but also for avoiding worse outcomes what do you think how do you feel about that so for most people um in my like inner circle i'm like thinking of a really good friend back home who had a terrible toronto marathon a couple years ago even three years ago and he stopped at 30k and he's like okay a couple weeks later i'll go run um another marathon and to this day he thinks that ended his running career so i don't know i think it does i think it more often than not makes it worse. I think there's probably cases where it does get better. Mm. But I think this this idea of rushing to a solution often makes things worse. I mean, I'd say some things about the economy here, but we'll leave that. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, the other thing I think I realized in reading your series is that resilience isn't just about resilience through hard times. Uh, you know, I think there's also a form of resilience that's important through good times, through good outcomes Yeah. that I think I knew at some level, but hadn't really equated into this topic of resilience because yeah, you could have a good outcome. You could have all the feelings associated with that. And I think in those same moments, there's a rush to try to get to the next thing, Yep. which in your case led to burnout <laughs> a total burnout <laughs> right yeah. so while you were celebrating this amazing accomplishment of a phd and ice cream engineering <laughs> <laughs> you didn't process that moment the right way and therefore jumped quickly back into another paper ended up in a dark place or at least a burnout place because of it so anyway my point here is that i think this concept of resilience comes in both circumstances, not just in good outcomes, but also bad outcomes. Yeah, I think, or not just bad, but also good. <laughs> and I, I've, 
I don't know if I've talked about it before or written about it before, but like learning the lessons from when you have success, because how else are you going to have that same success again? Like you have to have, like you have to learn the lessons from that or you, you can't repeat those either. Um, I think I th- didn't think my PhD was a big deal. That's what got me. Hmm. I, I don't, I didn't really, I didn't really think that defending my thesis was and I think part of it is that you get this 30 days of revisions that you have to do. So it doesn't really feel like it's done. And then it's another like four months till they technically publish it and you're technically done. And so maybe it was just this like, it's not like racing or other things where I've done where there's finality. It just kind of dragged on. And quite maybe it was like getting the emails to be like, you're graduated and this, that, the other that brought out the emotions. Like I'm still working through that, but I also need to sit and learn the good things I learned from my PhD so I can actually move forward and write some papers because I did publish that. Um, (laughs) And I'm kind of, you know, I'm sort of at the point with this one paper where I'm like, okay, I need to to clean you up and and publish you. Like, what were those things that I did at the end of my PhD to to clean it up so it could be published? Yeah. Yeah, because resilience is a a concept to me that in some ways knows no bound of time. You know, resilience is endurance over time is the ability to maintain, be stable, be strong over time, which means that it transcends a good moment, a bad moment, a peak, a valley, and ideally kind of levels those things out for you. So key lesson there is even after the good races, even after the good outcomes, take the time to process to have your recovery, yeah. to think about what this all means, give yourself an opportunity to rest, recover, so that when you when it is time to build back, you are actually ready for that, versus rushing to burnout, <laughs> like Sasha. Don't be Sasha. Run right there. Run to it. Run to it. <laughs> so another thing. So another part of your series was sort of talking about what resilience is not. And so I wanted to call out a few of the things you mentioned in that part of the blog. One of the things you mentioned is it's not about eliminating challenges. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of a fascinating point because, you know, I think some people equate those things. If I can just avoid the pitfalls, if I can just avoid the pain, if I can just avoid the suffering, the whatever it might be, then I'm resilient. Because I, you know, didn't have to face it or I had to face it less than it would right. have been had it really been a thing. Right. And that kind of goes back to the point about accepting the pain. But, and so like with a marathon, just as an example, you're not resilient by training to make it not hurt. <laughs> right. If it didn't hurt, you did it wrong. <laughs> because there's something <laughs> wrong, right? In that situation. Yeah. So, so talk about that point. Um. Well, the only way to get better is to be in that place of pain and discomfort, right? Like back to the marathon, like going through interval training. Like if your intervals don't hurt, you're doing it wrong. Um, And same, you know, same thing with the long runs and everything else. Like fine, recovery runs are not supposed to hurt. Like they're supposed to be the recovery runs. But truth, it's those moments of, these are the moments where I'm supposed to stretch and gain strength and gain, you know, embrace the pain, embrace the discomfort so that I can actually be better, right? Like, I look at resilience as a process. And so to part of that process is growing through it. Resilience isn't this static line. Resilience is, you know, in a sense, always climbing, no matter if you're 
having success or failing. Like I think resilience is supposed to be the steady ladder through your life. Um, and you can train it is essentially what we're saying here, right? You can train it by facing challenge. I think that's the best way to train it. You know, someone said to me on my blog, you know, I completely disagree with you. I don't think you can train resilience. And, you know, that gets Mm. back to mindset like Carol Dweck. And I'm like, I think first you got to start with mindset. And I think you got to open yourself up to to recognize that, yeah, some people might inherently be more resilient and you might have to work a little bit harder, but we all have to work at it. Yep. I think I shared this quote with you on Facebook, I think, but I saw Brene Brown. Here, oh. here at the University of Texas, she did a talk, and it was pretty awesome. <laughs> but one of the things she said that really stuck with me was that people need to realize that fear and courage come together, essentially. Mm-hmm. That, you know, courage is not the absence of fear. And then, in fact, having courage means that fear is present. And yet oftentimes we beat ourselves up for being fearful because we think that's a sign of weakness. But what she was emphasizing was this point that fears has to be there, you know, to be courageous. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's part of what we're talking about here is that it's not about eliminating fear, eliminating challenge, eliminating the difficulties that we might face. It's, how you respond when you do have those opportunities and giving yourself just the strength to actually face those challenges and you know fear anxiety like I think we're in a bit of a culture where we're trying to like eliminate all those things but those are really the things that make life fun right like oh I'm gonna you know go alpine skiing and throw myself off this face or I'm gonna go for this big long run or I'm going to attempt to do this interval block or I'm gonna attempt to read this challenging book like those are the things that make us grow but they also make us really excited about life and and curious and you know I think curiosity is one of those traits that we're all we're all born with curiosity like we stick everything in our mouths we try and kill ourselves <laughs> right thank goodness we have parents trying to be like oh don't eat that oh don't stick your fingers in that outlet but you know it's it's in teaching us to have a threshold of curiosity where we don't kill ourselves but we keep life really exciting Speaking of Brene Brown, you also talk about another thing that resilience is not, which is armoring up Mm -hmm. or not showing vulnerability. She is an expert in vulnerability (laughs) and and talks a lot about that. You know, I think her her TED talk on shame and vulnerability is one of the most viewed ever. So I'd highly encourage you to go search that. I'll I'll link it in the show notes as well. But it's basically this idea that you have to show weakness in order. And weakness isn't the right word there. Vulnerability is the right word. But you have to show, you know, the challenges you face. You have to show the emotion. You have to be comfortable experiencing the world and sharing that experience with others in a way that's real and authentic and that doesn't hide the fact that it's hard. Mm-hmm. So what do you learn from Brene Brown there? I think she equates it to openness, right? So mm-hmm. it's not a, it's this, it's this idea of being open and you can't be open if you're wearing a shield. Like you quite, you know, it's, you can't, you have a shield on your heart. You can't open it up. You can't, same with your brain. If you don't open it up, you know, you're, you're, 
you're guarding yourself in such a way um, and it's actually not protective in the end because you then, when you arm wrap, you can't connect with people. Um, and it's, it's really funny, right? Like some people are almost debilitatingly shy, right? And they wear shyness as, as armor. And unfortunately it comes across a lot of the times as someone being really mean. Um, and it's getting through their armor of shyness to get them to open up. And they're often you look back and you're like, oh, that person's not mean. They're just shy. And right. I think we need to, you know, reframe when we see someone who's re- we think is really mean and say, maybe it's the way I'm interpreting their feelings. Like maybe they're so shy, they're armoring up. Like maybe I need just need to be kinder. Right. right? But our reaction is to armor up and be mean back. Right. And so we have to remove the armor and actually just be kind. Yep. So it reciprocates. Yeah. Well, and yeah, and just acknowledge that you might be feeling a certain way. They might be feeling right. a certain way. But instead of assuming, dig into it, figure it out, meet each other in the middle somewhere. So let's talk a little bit about what to do, how to show resilience. You have a whole dedicated blog on that as well in the series or tools community and connection at the top of the list that we know well at rogue (laughs) as that's a pillar of what we do here surrounding yourself with people that are in it with you that help you through it what does that mean to you so it's actually my sign that i'm not better Hmm. um and so i'm i'm actually quite afraid still to connect with people i'm afraid to bring my burden of what i'm going through into their lives um and it's a good reminder for me to check and to be like nope you're still not you're not ready and you're not you're not better in a sense and you're not through this yet um Hmm. because you're not ready to basically share the journey with others no i don't want to burden people with it I, I, I'm afraid of driving people. I'm afraid of losing connection and driving people away by sharing what I'm going through. But isn't that against what Brene Brown says? Totally. The openness point. Hence, I'm still not. So you're still better. recovering. I'm still recovering, but well, I recognize you need, it. You need more nature time. More nature time. Yeah. That's fascinating though, because it's a little bit of a double-edged sword, right? It's like you need community to recover, mm-hmm. but you're not willing to enter the community to recover. Yeah. So what do we do about this catch-22? I force myself to do it once a day. Hmm. Um, okay. And even if it's only for five minutes, um, it, it make, well, it makes a big difference, right? Because, you know, you just say hi to people, you connect with them, and you're like, okay, I'm still a human. I'm good. Yep. Yeah. How was your day? How's training going? How's this going? How's work? And, um, you know, my burnout strategy is to go hibernate in a hole. Yep. I mean, here I'll be very Canadian. Go hibernate in an igloo. Um, you know, one thing about that that I think I've learned through the years, and as someone who is an introvert, it's not always easy for me to wear my feelings on my sleeve. And so, oftentimes for me this concept of community and connection is a burden as well when I'm having a rough time because I think of it as work, mm-hmm. you know, as an introvert, I get my energy from being alone Yeah, and extroverts, they get their energy from being with people. Yeah, And so, you know, from that orientation, I'll think about going to a place of community and it feels like a burden, feels like work, feels like something I have to 
not necessarily put a face on for, but perform for at some level. Yeah. And, and so one of the things that I've realized in those moments is just, is to recognize and then live out the fact that it's just okay to be whatever I'm feeling. Right. You know, and that gets back to the openness, but it's like, I'm not going to put on a mask ever. I mean, I shouldn't say ever, but I try (laughs) not to put on a mask and just show up. And if somebody asks, how are you doing? Just say, I'm struggling a little bit. Right. And be open and honest about it with people because usually then that creates a connection that allows you to work through it. Yep. (laughs) So, um, I'm looking at your furry monster lying on the floor. My dog. Uh, Your dog. Um, I must have some spiritual connection with animals, um, dogs (laughs) in particular. So my community, community connections actually first came, um, walking in the woods by my house. There's a, uh, off leash dog park and I would go at primetime dog walking time. Why? Mm. Cause I got to see all the furry animals. Um, a few of them tried to come home with me, which was great. Uh, not, maybe not for their owners, but good for me, (laughs) but it actually got me talking, like talking to strangers, which I don't like doing, but it was this connection through dogs and it, it was sort of this alone time, but with people time. So I, you know, mostly was in the woods, not alone because I'm with all these people out walking their dogs, but I could be that introvert in my own head. Yep. And then really I'd get dog hugs and those are the best. <laughs> the dogs were your community. The dogs are my community. <laughs> That's awesome. But, but yeah, I mean the point being, yeah, there may be a moment when you just want to be alone and face your own feelings and emotions, but then you got to force yourself out yeah. of it and, and be okay with being real Yep. In those moments so that others can help lift you up versus avoiding it, which also means, by the way, talking to your coach about these things. If you have a coach and say, hey, this is how I'm feeling. Yep. I'm really struggling. Don't try to hide it. Yeah. Because just like that gentleman I talked about who may have been a little bit sheepish about talking to me and I sort of forced him (laughs) to have a conversation anyway, it it's oh it's okay your coach is gonna love you anyway yeah you know it's interesting something that scott fobble also talked about how he used to dread races a little bit but now he really gets excited for them not only because of this idea of embracing and letting in the pain like i described earlier but also because he realizes that no matter what the people that matter in his life are going to love him anyway no matter what the outcome is and that's certainly true and i've never i've really actually never seen it more true than when i've had bad races I remember yeah. after I had my worst race ever in Boston and a couple of years back when I got my stress fracture, I had to walk the last five miles, ended up with a personal worst marathon time and didn't have my phone with me. And so I, it took me like two hours to get yeah. back to my phone and eventually I did. And, and there was just, just a barrage of messages of support of people, you know, reaching out to make sure I was okay. And that's probably more messages than I've ever gotten, (laughs) you know, from a way more than I've ever gotten from a good race. Right. Not that they don't care about those moments too, but you know, your, your community, your group, your coaches, you know, they're going to love you anyway. So it's funny. I got this, this is a Brené Brown thing. So coming back from Doha, you talk about, um, the people that reached out to you, but you also talked about how worried you were that you disappointed people. Right. And, you know, I talked to my coach, my parents and everybody else, despite listening to them, I wasn't really listening. And the story I was telling myself was that I disappointed everybody. Hmm. And I'm out for this run and 
I'm listening to my academic crush, Brene Brown, because I needed to be in a happy place. And she's like, I can fix your life in five minutes. And I'm like, standing in the middle of the road, like, do I stop? Do I start? What do I do? Do I take notes? Like, and right. I was like, just keep running. Like, you're listening. Like, you're fine. And I did actually stop it after she explained it. And she, she calls it the story you're telling yourself. And I actually have a note to make, to write a blog about this. So we tell ourselves these stories, these negative stories, because our brains crave them. We tell ourselves, I disappointed my coach. I disappointed my partner. I've disappointed all of those people around us. But really they're so proud of us and they don't define us by these things that we do. And so you literally just have to tell your brain, I'm telling myself a different story. And I was like, the story I'm telling myself is that I'm still a great racer. I'm still a great runner. I'm still in love with this. And that run, it was so interesting. Like the, the effort level, I went from running five minute kilometers to running four thirties and it, my heart rate dropped 20 beats. The body responded. The body responded. It you, let go. You let go. I yeah. let go. Interesting. I full on stood in the middle of the street and cried. <laughs> Thank goodness for sunglasses. <laughs> yeah. It, I mean, it's it's interesting. And I think that point about telling yourself a different story is true in a lot of situations. But that one is a particularly important one to, because most of the time... We're just, it's wrong. What we're telling ourselves is wrong, <laughs> right? Just flat out wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yep. You're wrong. <laughs> wrong. So you got to admit that. So, okay. So community and connection, we talked about that. You talk about courage as well as something that you need to face resilience. But. I don't think it really comes in the form of maybe the traditional views on courage that we're talking about. I mean, or not wearing courage is a piece of armor. Right. <laughs> don't let the arrows deflect off. <laughs> so how would you define courage in this context? So, cur- so in this context, courage for me was taking off the armor of letting people down. It was almost an easier story to tell myself. Or not just it was an easy story to tell myself. It was... It was easier to process, but it also like you, you can shield up and shield in, but I wasn't listening because I wasn't open to all those people who were actually talking to me. Yeah. So courage was not being afraid to actually listen to people. Courage was, um, not being afraid. So one of my fears is that I don't actually have the ability to run, that I'm not actually a runner. That's just this magical gift that's come into me. And that it, could go away at any time. Yeah. And I guess I kind of like wear this armor idea of, oh, it's gone. Um, and it takes courage to admit that I've actually been the person that's done all this work. Like that for me is courage. And courage is something very different for everybody else. But that's that moment for me of being vulnerable, of being like open to the things that I've done. I'm much better off at closing off and pretending that they didn't happen and just being like, ha, I'm going. Yeah. I think there's also courage of and also admitting how you feel. You know, I've had those races that weren't good in my mind, but then people would tell me anyway, say, well, I was amazing. You still did this or that time is amazing. I could never run that. And so you get those people trying to lift you up and they mean well, Totally. but you can't hear that because you're in your head, you're telling yourself, no, actually it wasn't good. Yeah. And I don't sometimes know how to deal with those situations 
part of me, the natural instinct would be to avoid, <laughs> you know, would be to say, you know, either just listen, nod my head and walk away or to avoid people like that because I don't want to hear it. But I think the better approach is actually to say, I appreciate that comment, uh, that, that encouragement, but I don't feel it. Right. And just be open and admit that you can't accept that even if it's coming from a good place. Now, the worry I have in those situations is then you're going to make them feel bad. Right. <laughs> but, but I think the real more likely scenario is that it would open up a real conversation where they could truly understand and then support you perhaps even better than just throwing platitudes your way. But I think you reframed the conversation. I think we're often quick to jump and say, I don't feel that way, as opposed to starting it with, thank you for the compliment. Thank you for the encouragement. Like just by saying thank you and acknowledging that they're trying to do something with good intent. Right. But then we get, we often get defensive and we forget the thank you. And so then they'll get defensive because we've been defensive and mm. it's just, but if you open it up, it takes courage to say, thank you. I don't feel that way. Right. But you can armor up and just be defensive. Right. So it's it's being brave, right? And saying, I but I'm not ready to feel those things yet. Right. Right? Instead of saying, I don't feel those things, it's courage and bravery to say, I'm not ready. Right. So that's courage. Courage is being vulnerable, courage is being open, courage is being honest with yourself and others about how you actually feel. Courage is not throwing on the tough face and skin and shield and just hiding from it. Yeah. Which is, I mean, and some people are probably thinking, what, where have Chris and <laughs> Sasha gone with this? <laughs> but it's important. Yeah. It's important. The reason it's important is because unless you can process those and and you can take this to life, sure. But, you know, I think for the most part, we're talking about running failure, yeah. right? Unless you can process those moments, you might, they might carry with you for a long time. You know, I was talking to someone recently who is a very tough runner who generally has good races, but for whatever reason has a little bit of a hang up with the marathon itself. Gee, I wonder why. <laughs> yeah right for whatever so odd reason so far and in spite of being successful at other distances right. and i think part of that is because of bad experience associated with a story that is now being told to herself that she's not good at that distance versus the real truth which is that she's a badass runner who does all the work and who's right ready to go crush any marathon if she believes it's, it takes a lot of courage to believe in yourself right it's it's one thing to accept the belief from somebody else it takes a lot more courage to believe in yourself right yeah. i i can give all the advice i want on how to not burn out it takes a lot of courage to follow my own advice you're working on that i'm working on it <laughs> struggling but working <laughs> i'm not on the struggle bus i'm working and this podcast is a part of it. We're yeah. sharing. We're being open. <laughs> I just want to crawl under a blanket and hide. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned two other things. Curiosity. I didn't expect that one on the list. 
But I think if I could try to paraphrase what you're saying there, it's curiosity about learning from the experience essentially that you're talking about. Trying to, just like we talked about earlier, dig into the experience, channel it, be curious about how you're feeling, be curious about how you're processing certain things. And then through that curiosity, be able to get to deeper lessons. Is that fair? I think it's also about being curious in different areas of our life. Sometimes you just need to go on a separate adventure from running to get yourself out of the mental hole another way. And then you can come back to it. Sometimes it happens through running and and through something curious that way. But I think it's also about exploring different things. And And I think that gets back to like different challenges, right? So you can kind of avoid a certain challenge in front of you, tackle another one in a tangential way, which gives you the strength and the courage to come back and and face the challenge in front of you. So is that related to your curiosity and nature? Like exploring those experiences that draw your interest right now? Yeah, so I think you know, I'm going to I'm going to approach training very differently for the next couple of weeks. Yes, I have to come back from falling on my hip. Um, but I think before falling on my hip, one of the things I wanted to play with this winter was um, going out and spending like big blocks of time, like six to eight hours on a trail. So you're not going to run the whole time. You might just walk or like I think I'm going to get a fat bike Um and go like fat tire bike fat tire bike no yeah. shocks right um snow crunching or ride my mountain bike on like trails that will accept it but just doing sort of stoking the fire in different ways um mostly because i'm really excited to try that and do that um i mean it's gonna have a training effect may not be the training effect i want but i think it's gonna be a good training effect no matter what that makes sense. I also think there's a piece of this, which is being curious about different ways to not manage, but to process whatever you're facing. Mm-hmm. And and so you may not know how to get out of it. And it's going to happen in a race. You may not know how to get through a negative space in the race. but what you can know is a few things to try. Yeah. You know, you don't know what's going to work, but you can know a few things to try and pull something out of that quiver and say, all right, let's try this. Right. And, you know, for me, that might be, as I've talked about on the show before, counting to 30. Sometimes that helps dissociate from whatever I'm feeling, just the simple process of (laughs) counting to 30, knowing that I can survive anything for 30 seconds. (laughs) But if, but sometimes that doesn't work. Right. I'll tell you, I was in a really dark place this weekend in my race. We talked about it earlier at the end. And I put myself there intentionally. You yeah. know, like that was the plan. It was, okay, Chris, you're going to race hard. You're going to go to the, the well early. You're not going to follow your normal, very prescriptive and cautious race plan structure. You're going to instead focus on racing and trying to hopefully by getting out strongly cause some pain and consternation behind you in the field that would be an, that would give me an advantage and so that's what I did knowing that at the end 
it would be it would be rough and it was rough not just because i went out too hard but also because the conditions on the back half of the course <laughs> were even worse with a headwind and the massive hills that come with that course out at decker and i remember at one point trying the counting thing and it, <laughs> it was like well that's not so i gotta work today nope. i was too far out <laughs> from the finish so it just wasn't working and so then i just went to other things and and one of them oddly enough just that came to me was watching the runner in front of me dominic who i train with all the time and i was just I I sort of became intentionally hypnotized by his stride and flow, cool. which was better than mine. <laughs> At least I felt like in the <laughs> moment. And so I was literally watching his form because he has a nice, well, he has good form and a nice high back kick and all this other stuff. And so I was trying to be like Dominic. Yeah. And so just the, the mind process of trying to mimic what he was doing because it looked better than what I felt like I was doing took my mind off of it I may have also given me better form in the moment to help me be a little smoother in a dark place but it also just took my mind off of it dissociated me from what I was suffering through and was one of the strategies that ended up helping me in that race I've never done that before in my life I don't even know where it came from but it was just <laughs> It was just like, I need to try something, try something to see if it helps. And for whatever reason that helped on that day. And so anyway, I think that's part of this curiosity is if you're processing something that's hard, you don't have to know what it's going to, what's, what you're going to do to get through it. All you have to do is try something. And if that works, latch onto it. If it doesn't work, try something else. I have a question for you. Okay. Were you excited for this challenge and this sort of like, anxiety kind of situation you were going to put yourself in the night before? I was very excited about yeah. it. Yeah. So like that's curiosity. I was very excited about it. Yeah. And I knew what I was getting into, but people ask me like, Oh, you know, it's Decker. It's going to be hard. And there were things on the line. I'm competing in this race series called the distance challenge trying right. to win. And, and so, yeah, no, I, I had a plan. I was going to go execute that plan. I knew it was going to put me in a, a hard place. But yeah, no, I was excited. You know, a little bit fearful too. That fear came more as I got closer <laughs> to the start time. But um, but no, it was exciting. And that, But that fear is the normal, natural courage. Yeah. Like, I'm going to yeah, put yeah. my courage on and go. And But yeah. I think that that's why we come back to it. There's also, I think, a part of it is that, and, you know, I can, I guess, take credit for this, but one of the stories I tell myself about me as a racer is that I'm resilient and strong when it gets hard. And part of that's because I have been in the past. Part of that's, I think, because I tell myself that story and then it, you know, then it plays out that way. Right. You know, but if I had this story that, well, I'm, and I fold the hard when it gets hard, then that wouldn't work either. So, you know, I knew that it was going to get hard, but I also knew, or at least the story that I tell myself is that I'm good when it gets hard. Like I can manage it better than most people. And 
I don't know how real that is. Like, I don't think there's anything innate in me that makes me stronger than maybe someone else, but it's just a story that I've owned. So I was ready to execute my extremely aggressive plan because I told myself, you know what? You're going to be strong even when it gets hard. And that may, that may have just been a story, but it worked. Story we tell ourselves. And then there are other things like mimicking Dominic's form (laughs) that helped too. Sounds like it's beautiful. I got to come watch this. (laughs) Will I see him tomorrow morning? Uh, No, you will not. So the last thing you mentioned about resilience or being resilient is commitment. Commitment. What do you mean by that? Um, just not giving up. And it's, you say, you know, your story of you're resilient in races and you're tough. So that's the story that I told myself for a long time. How do I know I'm burnt out? I forgot that story. And, you know, I like it when things get challenging, but I'm quite clearly not in a position to do them right now. I think I'm recovering so I can do it again. Um, And I'm committed to this long-term process, right? And I think I don't have a marathon on the calendar, but I have one on the calendar in the sense that I'm not done. I know that I'm going to do another one at some point. I'm just not going to put the when there. And so there's still a commitment to that journey. And, you know, this is fine. This is a low moment in training, right? But I'm committed to doing it and it's this idea of putting forth excellence and whatever excellence might be that day and, and persevering. Um, quitting's not the answer right now. Like quitting isn't the courageous choice. Um, and so I'm, you know, I'm making a commitment to do it again. Cause like I want to be good at the marathon. I just, I know I don't need to be good at it this moment in time. It will come. And I know it'll come because I'm committed to making that my goal. It's the idea of just putting one foot in front of the other, basically. Except when you put your foot in front of the other and you stick it <laughs> in the shoelace and you fall over. Right. But yes. But basically just keep moving. Keep moving forward. And it doesn't matter how small that step is. And even when you go back, you get up and you take the smallest step forward. That's commitment. Have you seen Frozen 2 yet? Okay, so I love kids' movies, and I like The Lion King, and they sing there. I didn't like that they sang in Frozen. So you didn't watch Frozen 2? Well, not yet. Okay. I'm well, also terrible at going to movie theaters. I watch most okay. of my movies I'm on airplanes. I'm just asking a question. I'm not judging. <laughs> but don't tell me the movie, then. I think I need to go well, see I, it. I'm not going to tell you the movie, but there's a, a moment <laughs> in the movie where a particular character gets behind this idea of doing the next right thing. And he or she, <laughs> Olaf, he or she may or may not know what what the outcome might be or how to get to the outcome that is wanted in that moment. But he or she did know <laughs> the next right step, even if the rest of the path wasn't lit lit yet. And And I sort of think that's kind of what we're talking about here, which is just that you don't have to know how you're going to come out of it. You don't have to know what you're going to learn between now and running your best marathon yet. You don't have to know all those steps. All you have to do is do the next right thing. Do the next thing you know to do that's right in front of you. And for you right now, it's 
taking walks in nature, <laughs> processing, doing your one-on-one off. <laughs> Get 10 minutes of running with me tomorrow, perhaps. Let that bursitis settle down. Yeah, all the right things. And, and, you know, and then once you get through that, then the next step will illuminate. Yeah. And that's where also perhaps consulting community and connection, people that can point you in the right direction is a part of that part of the process too. But it's just continuing to move forward. And the interesting part to me about that is that that should be true, whether you have a good or bad race experience moment. And, and, and that's sort of the, the journey part, the process and journey part. And you have to be in love with that part, knowing that the journey, knowing that the process of running or whatever you're trying to accomplish is going to have peaks and valleys, is going to have ups and downs, is going to have times where you're frustrated, times where you're injured, times where you didn't get the race result you wanted, times where you want to quit and think, this is something, I'm done, I'm just done, yeah. right? But the magic is just continuing to step through it. And usually you come out stronger on the other side. And that's, then, then the, then those good moments are even sweeter. Yeah, it's like our relationship with running is it's like a marriage, right? Like I'm in love with my partner all the time. I may not like him all the time, right? Right. But recognizing those moments where I still love you. I just don't like you right now, (laughs) right? And running, I love you. I just don't like you right now. But it's separating that love and, and like thing. And so that you can have those dislike moments, but not shatter something and not ruin something that's so good. Because running is so good and so joyful and beautiful and filled with courage and strength and bravery. I'm not willing to throw it to the flames and ruin it because I dislike it at times. I'm totally in love with the process. And I think that's what this commitment piece is about. I love it. (laughs) So... For those that are still listening to our <laughs> we go so to long our all the time. circuitous story here about resilience, final takeaways: be in love with what you do, um, and find a community that that loves it in a way you do too. I like that. For me, the message is just keep moving forward. I think that's resilience is just continuing to move forward regardless of what happens. Yeah. And usually if you do that, it means you'll certainly hit some valleys along the way, but the peaks will be worth it. Totally worth it. And for you, I certainly hope that's true. I know it's true. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) Just get the Jewishness out of me and get me to stop falling. Stop falling, <laughs> Sasha. Just stop falling. I'm try- I really am trying. <laughs> Actively try. Tie your laces differently. <laughs> All right. With that, Sasha, thanks for joining me in Austin to pick <laughs> up your packages. This has been a pleasure. <laughs> and happy Hanukkah. Happy holidays. Holidays are better because I'm here. <laughs> and uh, we will, I'm sure, talk to you soon. <laughs> thanks <good>. so much. <laughs> Sasha Golish, everyone. Thanks to jo- thanks to her for joining me. Really appreciate it. Always appreciate her insight. I did want to follow up by saying simply that we know that a lot of our talk about resilience there really related back to how you might bring resilience to your running. 
but I know that there is obviously some natural carryover to how you might be dealing with resilience in all parts of your life. And I just want to make sure that we mention and that you know that you know, Sasha and I are not mental health professionals. So if you're dealing with deeper challenges in your personal life, please do seek the advice and counsel of a mental health professional to work through that. This podcast is certainly not a replacement for that. So with that as a final note, we'll wrap it here. Thanks as always to to you for listening. Happy holidays to everyone. You can always check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or the Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next week, we'll talk to you soon.